Hi, I'm Brandon. And I'm Joshua. And you're listening to The Garbage Podcast. It's Thursday, October 29th, 2015. For tonight's uh, topics, we're going to cover some issues with uh, Google on the Nexus 6. I guess they're issuing refunds. Um, we're also going to talk about Beastie, uh, a Poland site that did a bunch of interviews of OpenBSD developers and kind of celebrated OpenBSD's 20th um, anniversary. And uh, some ARM stuff where uh, we, you and I have both worked on getting OpenBSD to run on some ARM platforms. So we're going to talk about that a little bit as well. Cool. I am going to talk about a new laptop that I've been using the past few days. Excellent. So up first, um, the Nexus 6P, we touched on it a little bit in last week's episode, the long-awaited Nexus device that is um, supposed to be Google's new premium Android device. Apparently, people were getting ship dates, um, like estimated ship dates on their back order. And Google said, eh, it's going to be a couple extra weeks for some of these devices. And so they started canceling people's orders and issuing them a $25 credit or vouch. Um, I'm not sure what it's for. Like, I'm, I'm not sure if it's like Google Play Store credit or if it's just a $25 gift card or whatever. But people were kind of upset about it a little bit. Were you one of those people? No, actually, because um, the same day that that happened, I got a shipping notification. Ah. And so apparently the lower end models, the 32 gigabytes silver or whatever it was, they have three different colors. Apparently they're shipping, but the 64 gig and the 128 gig models apparently are going to take a couple extra weeks. And um, on one hand, it was really nice of Google to take care of their customers. And on the other hand, I think people were, I mean, they weren't really expecting anything. You know, the ship dates were an estimation. They were broad. They were like, you know, middle of November. You know, Google tried to be proactive about it. and. So when is your phone or arriving? Well, there's a tracking label that was created, and it says it's in um, Chicago right now. So I don't know if that just means that they created the label and it'll still be some number of days before it ships. Um, but it says Monday that I should have it at the latest. Yeah, cool. Very excited about that. And so which uh, version did you get? I got the lowest um, storage capacity. I think it's 32 gigs. And I want to say that I got the aluminum finish. Like silver color? Because they're all aluminum, right? Yeah, they're all aluminum, but there's like, um, one of them is a little darker, and then there's an aluminum color finish, and then there's some other metallic finish that's a little bit different shade of aluminum. <laughs> I see. And what phone are you on now? Um, I have the Nexus 6. Okay. What are you looking forward to the most? Yeah, the, the one thing that I always use my phone for is pictures and videos. And even though this new 6P is supposed to have less megapixels than my existing phone, the sensor size has increased drastically, which means when I take a picture in low light, um, it, it um, doesn't have to expose the uh, sensor for as long. So low light images aren't going to be as blurry or distorted. So hopefully I should get some really good low-light shots and be able to um, capture some really good pictures despite having a little bit less megapixels than my camera does now. So it's less megapixels, but they're better megapixels? That's right. Yeah, that's the whole idea. I think even um, they were comparing it to the iPhone 6, mm -hmm. and they said uh, twice the size or something like that. I don't know. Basically, it means that you need 
that much less light to expose a picture, which is good. And are you looking forward to Android 6? Because you haven't upgraded yet, right? I have not upgraded. I would like to get my hands on it. I, I've been reading stuff, but honestly, it's it's so hard to weed through stuff on the internet these days. You know, you don't really know um, if you're buying into someone's bias or there's a legitimate complaint or what. Oftentimes, the, the touch and feel aspect of it kind of wins over all the other practicalities of it anyway, it seems like. But I'm looking forward to getting the marshmallow release and um I I'm I'm kind of debating now or I'm kind of waiting to see now if my phone arrives or I get the marshmallow update on my Nexus 6. <laughs> oh, they haven't even pushed it out yet. They have pushed it out to certain people and there's a little bit of a problem. The big LTE bands that everyone uses on T-Mobile is like band 12. And with the 6.0 update that that band doesn't work and it's yet to be seen if that's a technical oversight or if it's something that was negotiated with the carriers that they were saying you know well you're using bands that you know we don't want you to use or i don't really know what it is that's complete speculation but in the back of my mind that's what i'm thinking is a lot of times that happens where somebody will say well you can use our network but you can't have certain facilities of it maybe i'm making that all up. But in the back of my mind, that was the first thing I thought, because when people asked about it in the Project Phi community, there was a lot of silence. So we'll wait to see how that all transpires. And then we saw a delay in more people getting the over-the-air update. And so what I'm thinking happened is they pushed it out to some early people and then found problems, and they're working frantically to resolve them. And so the rest of us are kind of are going to be delayed until they get that stuff ironed out. You know, it's uh, funny you were mentioning the touch and feel of of how the the device is over the you know raw specs of it. And yep. uh, we were talking last week about that article uh, that we, uh, Windows manufacturers need to step up the quality and stop just trying to race to the bottom. Yeah, there was a um, YouTube review that I watched the other day, and a guy was comparing the the new Microsoft Surface, the one that's kind of like a laptop, you know, the one with the weird hinge. I don't know if you've seen it. I do, yeah, and and I can't remember the specifics of it too much. I know that there's a, a high-end Dell one that it competes with, Yeah. and uh, uh, they're comparing that Windows tablet or Surface to the new Pixel C. Right. He was comparing the new Surface uh, laptop to the new, I think it was the MacBook Pro, but the whole uh, review was basically just comparing all of the little touch and feel things. So he didn't even like compare the CPU specs and everything, which is what I care about more. Like I don't care that the it has the latest CPU and everything. I care about all the stuff that you have to interact with every day, like the keyboard and the touchpad and the screen and all that stuff. Yeah. So I would prefer to see more um, reviews like that. Yeah, I think so too, because what that gives you is, here's how I'm using this device. And in my day-to-day -day usage, this is what I think about. And these are the things that I enjoy. And these are the things that I really get hung up about. <laughs> right. And then you can decide, well, I'm not going to use that for that. I'm going to sit here and read books on it. So, you know, the gaming feature doesn't matter to me. Right. Yeah, I don't care that it has the, the fastest CPU because I'm never going to use it that much. Yep. Well, good. Do you want to move along and talk about the um, the OpenBSD interviews? Yeah. So they were... Um... 
at beastie.pl, which is a odd URL to type into a web browser. I feel like I'm going to some sort of weird bestiality website. Yep, that's the first thing I thought, man, should I put this in at work? Right. <laughs> I had to check the email again because um, I got an email um, requesting to like do an interview, and I thought, oh my goodness, is this spam? Like, This is really hard to swallow right now. Yeah. But uh, it turns out it's legitimate, and it was actually really well done. Um, I was contacted by someone, and he said, I'm doing a bunch of interviews for um, this website, and we're, uh, we just finished up a round of uh, interviews with the developers of NetBSD, and we want to celebrate and showcase OpenBSD on their 20th anniversary, which I thought was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And he has done a great job. He's translated the um, the interview questions into Polish because it's a Polish website. And um, he's also done a really good job of like getting a bunch of developers' responses together in a short period of time and kind of like release them, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks. Um, and I think it started on OpenBSD's actual 20th anniversary, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the weird thing is uh, how many developers don't want to talk about themselves or what they're doing. Because even after the official hackathons on Undeadly, when they tried to get developers to uh, talk about what they did, so few of them ever write in. I know, and it's it's hard sometimes because what for me is I don't know that what I'm saying or what I'm talking about seems relevant to anyone. And when, in fact, it's exactly the opposite. If you just talk about, you know, the day-to-day struggles or the little tiny accomplishments that you got done, people love that. It's kind of like when um, I watched this thing on TV last night about pentatonics, and it's this a cappella group. And they were talking about no one really cares about the behind the scenes, but those behind the scenes videos that go on YouTube just get millions of hits. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that's what um, our communities love to see. Um, they like that they have visibility into the development process. They like to feed off of the change logs. They like to feed off of the interviews. And that's how they get their inf- information because we don't have like uh, Windows commercials and Chromecast commercials and check out this Google device at a big, you know, Google I.O. conference. We have you know, articles to publish and we have people who look at change logs. And I think um, that's the problem. Developers don't think that what they're doing is that interesting. And so they don't write about it. And also, I think it's kind of hard because, you know, you do that week and it's pretty intense. And um, by the time you're done, you're like trying to travel and you're trying to get wrapped up from your travels. And it's really hard to fit that in there. So if you don't do it on the plane or don't do it in the airport, you don't really get around to it. Mm -hmm. So I think those are the problems that I've seen, and I'm just going to speak for myself there. But I think it's important, definitely. Yeah, I think I personally get that uh, imposter syndrome where I think that what I've done is not really, nobody cares about it, and I didn't really accomplish everything that I set out to do. But uh, it is good to, to tell people what you did and what you need help with or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, people are always chomping at the bit where they can help. And, you know, sometimes just talking through the problem helps you to work through the problem. Yeah, at work we call it the teddy bear symptom or syndrome. I don't know if it's a syndrome or a symptom, but if you 
take time to talk through the problem and explain it to the quote-unquote teddy bear, usually that helps you realize where your issue is. Oh, yeah, I've heard that called um, the uh, rubber duck rubber duck programming or rubber duck uh, problem solving where you just talk to the rubber duck on your on your desk and it suddenly all makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Very good. Well, anyway, thanks to the folks um, who put that all together. I want to say Adam Wolk was the guy. Um, and he reached out to all the OpenBSD developers and um, took the time to put together those interviews. And I know that they put a lot of effort into translating those interviews into Polish so that their readers could have um, a good, honest translation of you know, context and jokes would make sense and all that kind of stuff. So really appreciate that. Um, that was really a lot of fun to do. And I, and I know that I enjoyed reading all the developers' interviews and seeing what they had to say. Yeah, definitely. Me too. All right, so to talk about the OpenBSD ARM port, and I've been working on this um, more off than on for a, a couple years now, and you've recently, uh, you and I had some correspondence about um, a device that you bought, and really the thing with ARM is that it's a really, really broad spectrum of devices, and, you know, before, everybody wanted OpenBSD to run on their laptop or their workstation. And now we have all these new devices that are coming out, um, little embedded boards, um, little netbooks, we have tablets, we have phones, all this cool stuff. And a lot of them are low power devices running with ARM CPUs on a little system on chip. And the appeal of these things isn't that they're a great computing platform, it's that they're inexpensive and they have really remarkable battery life, and they have a lot of GPIO. So if you want to plug in a little serial display and, you know, get some information across that, it's more easy to do on a BeagleBone Black than it would be on your ThinkPad. So that's kind of the appeal of it, but there's a lot of work that goes into bringing up um, an ARM board or an ARM device. Um, why don't you talk about the, the laptop that you just recently purchased? I bought a, an Asus Chromebook C201. Uh, I think it was like under $200. It's, um, I think it's an 11-inch screen. Decent keyboard. I mean, it's all kind of flimsy, but that's $200. Yeah, the, I think um, when we talk about booting ARM, that's probably one of the more interesting things. Um, normally... There's, well, more recently there's been people talking about BIOSes that, you know, look on their Windows partition for files and, you know, we're seeing almost malware in the BIOS. Um, and so people are saying, well, we need an open BIOS platform. And the Core Boot, U-Boot, um, CBIOS, well, it's kind of a stack, but let's just call it, you know, U-Boot. Um, there is source code available for that. And when Google goes out and they create a new Chromebook or they work with a partner to create a new Chromebook, there's um, source code published for these boot blocks. And the way Chromebooks boot, at least, there's a firmware on the computer itself, and it's running Google's version of um, U-Boot. And that version of U-Boot does 
verification of whatever payload it's going to boot. So when you turn on that computer, it looks at your partition um, layout, and it validates that it has a primary and a secondary partition, and then it goes to look at the the particular payload to see if it's a verified payload and if it's been tampered with it says oh go try and boot the backup one if it's been tampered with it shuts down and says you need to restore this thing and that particular firmware you can only update with hardware so you have to get like a, a chip or um, grab into the the leads on the pin and actually flash that with the machine open and, and do some other stuff um, you can't, it's not like a BIOS in a computer where you can get a BIOS utility and start writing to it. Now, that's okay um, to some degree because Google lets you boot um, a second U-boot image. U-boot does chaining, so you have your primary U-boot on the board in, that, in their firmware that you can't change. But you can modify that, um, some settings in that firmware to say, Go ahead and boot a non-verified U-boot image off of the USB drive. And of course, that image that you boot off the USB drive has to be verified. So Google is publishing um, a U-boot version called NVU-boot, and that NVU-boot can boot a non-verified image. So you have to chain them together. The other part to that boot cycle is that um, NVU-boot is well and good, but on the in the case of a Chromebook, you have no serial console. Um, some of the newer ones have this thing called Servo. Um, but basically, the other thing that you need from this other U-boot is you need to have a simple frame buffer device built into it so that you have console output for your Chromebook. It makes bringing up a new platform quite a bit harder because you have to have keyboards working um, and you have to have you know, the simple frame buffer working and all that kind of stuff, just to really be able to see if your kernel is affecting change or all that kind of stuff. So yeah, why don't you talk about um, some stuff that you discovered when you were bringing that, that board up? The problem with the C201 is that it does not use U-Boot anymore. Uh, Google has switched away from using U-Boot, and they now just use something called Depth Charge. Huh. So it's like stripped down. Um, I think it may have started from U-Boot, but it's like now completely stripped down. So you don't have any of that stuff like you have on the Samsung Chromebooks yep. where you can just boot that uh, NVU boot uh, and try to you know load your own kernel. So that's what made it so difficult to try and get OpenBSD booted on this thing um, because, as you were saying, you need to basically flash the chip with a hardware device and then boot it and see if it works and if it doesn't it won't even turn on and so you have to go back recompile reflash and this whole thing takes quite a bit of time yeah so um i documented the whole process of me figuring out how to do this uh i'll put it in the show notes but um so you basically have to um you boot to chrome os you hit a bunch of keys type some stuff to enable like a developer mode um, and then you basically have to open the whole thing, remove a write protect screw, and then you from within Chrome OS you can disable the write protection on the flash chip mm -hmm. because the write protect screw is gone. Then you power it back down, and then you can start 
on another machine or you can compile core boot with whatever you know changes you want which in free uh, openbsd's case would be i don't know some kind of custom uh depth charge payload yeah. to boot a kernel well um i'm not i'm not as familiar with depth charge um but in the case of uboot what would happen is you have to enable um, there's an option in there for booting a leg legacy BIOS image um, because the newer stuff is looking for and expecting flattened device tree. And we we don't have support for that in OpenBSD now, um, though we might get it in the future sometime if we can get some people to work on that. Um, so Is that person you? <laughs> yeah, it's probably not going to be me. Um, but what, what generally happens now is there's this definition that's passed in when you boot a kernel. You have a kernel, you have this flattened device tree, and you have some other thing that Chrome OS or Linux would boot. And we don't do that. Um, we actually make use of uh, what U-boot tells the operating system. So we use A tags, and um, A tags tells the kernel really early on in OpenBSD. It tells it the machine ID. Um, so one of the things that you know we're expecting really early on in the boot processes to get a machine ID and then from that we would look up the machine ID against what's in the source tree and say hey yes we know what that is oh that's a Exynos 4 or an Exynos 5 go ahead and configure these devices and then for the most part we know where those devices live the only other thing that we're expecting at that point from uBoot with this legacy option is the memory mapping and where it starts and where it ends. And as always with ARM, there's many sharp edges here because sometimes there might be reserved memory regions. So you might get a an entire range from U-Boot and it might say, hey, go from here to here, but there might be reserved memory in the middle there. And other times um, we might get um, the segments passed to the kernel, which is fine either way. Um, the kernel can handle, you know, reserved memory regions, and I think it's better if we have that, but sometimes if you get them and you try and map them and they're reserved, bad things happen. So that's one thing that I know you need when you start up the old U-boot. So um, I don't know what that would translate into for depth charge, but I'm there's got to be something similar. Um, hopefully they didn't do away with A tags because it'll make it more difficult to bring the platform up. I was able to set up like a virtual image with uh, Ubuntu and get uh, it to compile core boot because there's actually a guy with the Libre boot project. I don't know if you've heard of that. Mm -hmm. It's basically core boot with all of the non-free stuff stripped out of it. Yep. So he was trying to get Libre boot ported to the C201, which basically entails um, ripping out all the like Google splash screens and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was using some of his code. I got it all compiled. The weird thing is that when you compile core boot, it makes like a two megabyte image that you flash. Yep. But for some reason, you can only flash half of it. Oh. And if you flash that whole two megs, it basically uh, just like bricks the machine. Not permanently, but it won't boot or anything. Right. So you have to like take the first meg from your new ROM and the three megs from your backup, you have to merge them together and then flash the whole thing. Yeah, there's a lot of work, isn't there? 
Yeah, there is. I basically got to that step and stopped <laughs> because it was kind of getting over my head. Yeah. And and it's good because, you know, you've gone through the exercise, but at the same time, for anybody out there who's wondering why the hell does it take OpenBSD developers so long to get good ARM support, why don't they have support for the Raspberry Pi and the Banana Pi and the Acer Chromebook and the Samsung Chromebook and the HP Chromebook and um, all these different devices? We haven't even gotten, in what we just talked about, there's probably days of time um, you didn't try to get uh, core boot, core boot, or U-boot building in OpenBSD. Um, when I was trying to build an image for my um, ThinkPad, I was trying to get core boot built, and I had to extract the BIOS from my computer, and I wound up bricking my computer in in that process. And um, anyway, I went through a lot of work to get core boot to build on OpenBSD, and I built this BIOS image. Uh, you build this tool chain, and I was probably two weeks or more into this process. And the X220 is a supported platform for Core Boot. But of course, they don't tell you all the details of what options you need to enable. And, you know, mm -hmm. oh, they, you know, they have a config. They're like, yeah, grab this config. But if you want to do, if you want to build a specific payload to boot, well, then that is more work. So I spent two weeks getting, um, Core boot to build in OpenBSD, which takes a lot more work than if I just would have done it in Linux or whatever. But you have to have your working BIOS before you can get that build finished. So you have to have hardware things that read that BIOS. Well, at that point, um, what type of tool are you using to extract the BIOS from your computer? And in my case, um, I had to use a bus pirate. Yeah, that's what I was using. Yeah, I had to hook up a bus pirate, and I had to get some software compiling to make the bus pirate run. Um, and, and there's just a ton of work involved. So you have to get all that working to extract the BIOS that you have now, and then you pull out specific uh, regions of it, like um, like your VGA stuff and all that kind of stuff. And they say, oh, you can build it from Core Boot and all that stuff. But really, honestly, it just makes sense to extract the stuff from your existing BIOS. But anyway, you go through all that work, several weeks of work, just to be able to, you know, fiddle with the very first stage of the, the booting process. Right. Did you get Core Boot compiled on OpenBSD? Um, let's just say no. <laughs> okay. But I, I, I did, but I, um, the payload that I built just never did anything. Um, it, it did post, it did, um, like start to boot. But um, as far as a payload, there was never a valid payload in there, so that piece never worked. But yes, I got it building in OpenBSD, but I don't want to really talk about that because people will ask me questions. Um, like me? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, it it was really painful, and I did a whole bunch of really hacky stuff because um, like this one um, extract, I don't know, It was there. there's all this goofy stuff that happens in there. Like, produce this file and then strip out all these goofy characters and then run that into this thing that generates this other stuff. And it was like some Python script. And um, mine had extra characters in it. So I had to modify this tool to extract the extra characters. And, of course, there's like eight files that have this. So I have to go through the first process of the first file and then tell it not to regenerate the file for the second time I run it through for the first file. But then... 
regenerate the second file. And I mean, just goofy stuff. But yes, I, I did goof around with it on OpenBSD a bit. I had to cross compile the, um, the stuff using their toolchain. I had to build their toolchain. I was surprised that that worked. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a ton of work. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, that's all just to get it so that your computer turns on, uh, what it's actually doing at that point, uh, has nothing to do with OpenBSD yet. Yep. That's still really far down the road. So that's why the stuff takes so long and there's nobody that you can really ask for help because you're the first person to ever do it. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing too, that you have to remember is that these early boot stages for an ARM device are different on every single system on chip. So there are Exynos, there are, what is yours, like a rock rock chip? So NVIDIA has their X1 and K1 and all this kind of stuff. But every single last Exynos chip, the 5420, the 5250, the 5800, those all need these boot blocks for them specifically. The hardware is different. And that's one of the biggest shortcomings of ARM is it takes a huge amount of work to bring up each and every one of these chips. And we just don't have, you know, the horsepower in OpenBSD's development team to get that kind of stuff. I think a lot of times people in the Linux community forget that the people that wrote all that stuff to make it work with Linux work for the company that made that CPU yep. and work for Google. And they have all entire teams with, you know, manuals and all that other stuff at their disposal to figure this stuff out. Yep. And anybody that's not in that group is basically like trying to scrounge around for information. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And actually, um, I watched um, Google talk about Coreboot and their stack of booting a Chromebook. I will find a link to the video for anybody who wants to watch it. It's actually really, really helpful. And they just walk through the process of bringing up a new hardware device, like a new platform, mm -hmm. um, in U-Boot. So they're only talking about the U-Boot phase. But um, essentially what winds up happening is U-Boot brings up the hardware and initializes enough of it to do to get U-Boot running. And then U-Boot, again, initializes some stuff to get the next the next thing running. And then the kernel does the same thing. It bootstraps itself and gets a little bit more running. And then once the kernel's in there, you know, starts to boot the operating system and all this stuff. So that whole chain of events in ARM is, you know, very, very, uh, I guess, fragmented or segmented. All those chips are all different. But the amount of times you have to copy the like work or recreate the like work is, a, is you know, four, four times per platform. Uh, mm -hmm. Just because it happens in U-Boot so many times, and then uh, we need to have it happen in our boot. Um, ARM is one of the platforms where OpenBSD um, just doesn't have support for boot, and that's a huge disadvantage. Um, and then you have to have it happen again in the early phases of the kernel boot, and then the kernel has to support the hardware again and run the operating system on it. So you're you're likely to see a lot of the same obstacles over and over again when you try and do that kind of work. Yeah. The other thing to consider is like, this is, you know, I'm doing this work to get it running on a $150 laptop. That's probably going to be manufactured for one year. Right. And once I finally, or if I ever get it working, there's probably going to be new, you know, versions that are newer and better anyway. Yeah. And even if I were to make it actually into OpenBSD, 
who's to say you could even buy these laptops in a year or two? Yeah, that's the unfortunate thing. This this whole idea doesn't scale well. Did you see the news that? Uh, sorry, I just saw this. That um, Google is trying is going to merge Android and Chrome OS. I have heard rumors about this. Yeah, what yeah. are the details? Do you have any details on that? Uh, they published something uh, in the Wall Street Journal about it. I guess sources are saying that it's going to be coming in 2017. Um, I was hearing a lot of uh, grumbling from security people saying that, uh, you know, because Chrome OS is such a secure platform because of all the hoops that you and I need to jump through to just load some different code on those devices. Yep. But that Android, conversely, is so insecure with how open it is yeah. and uh, its lack of updates and everything. So there's certainly some wondering about which one's going to win, whether it's going to be a more closed platform or uh, open. Yeah. Well, to that point, um, have you heard the, the murmurings about the Pixel C? I saw the video of the, the demonstration of it, but I haven't seen anything much about it since then. Yeah, I haven't heard a peep about it. But to me, when I think about a normal, like, mobile computing, that's what I think about. I think about something that has a touchscreen that I can hold in my lap I mean, I'm assuming it's going to have like 10 hours of battery life and it has a little keyboard. So when I need to type and do stuff, I have that. Um, but I almost wonder if Android is not going to be the end game for mobile platform on there, because I look at Android and I see what they're doing with Marshmallow mm-hmm. and, you know, they're running Windows side by side. But I wonder if that is going to be kind of the pioneer for them to try and merge these two operating systems together because it sits in a very unique place. It's not a netbook and it's not a phone. And this tablet space needs to see some some change coming along to make them more useful as devices. I will confess that a long time ago when the Transformer Prime tablet came out, Mm -hmm. I bought that with the keyboard and I spent a lot of money on it because I thought it was a really I thought it made sense as a computing platform. Yeah. And I could write code on there, SSH into my machines and and do my stuff, but it does need work. Um I'm not going to sit here and pick on the issues of it, but as as a computer versus a phone, it doesn't bridge the gap between both of them. And I'm hoping from what I'm seeing with this Pixel that we might be getting closer to that. I was really intrigued with what I saw uh when they kind of hinted at that when they when they were like showing the hardware and showing the keyboard and stuff, I I mm-hmm. think they're on to something, and I hope that they're going to be, you know, using that device to kind of bring this new platform together. I'm I'm really excited to see where that goes. Microsoft did that with Windows 10. It's yep. the same operating system on tablets and uh, phones and computers. Apple's seems to be heading in that direction with their more focused on iOS than Mac OS anymore. Right. The new, you know, like the side-by-side stuff in iOS 9 on uh, the larger iPad seems to be going in that direction too. Yep. Uh, So I guess for Google, it doesn't really make sense to have, to be throwing resources at Chrome OS and Android. And I'm sure for the Chrome OS users uh, that are actually out there, having all those uh, Android apps that would run on your bigger screen would be pretty cool. Yeah, I think so too. And and you touched on the side-by-side, you know, 
applications thing, I've seen that in Marshmallow, right? They started mm -hmm. to talk about it. And um, one of the things that <clears throat> some of the tabloids said is that they talked about the screen aspect ratio. And they said that it's perfect for side-by-side -side applications and then uh, having four applications running in the same screen space and having them all scale proportionately to, you know, their full screen size. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm kind of thinking that what you're saying is is exactly on when Apple starts to do that kind of stuff and Windows is doing that kind of stuff, Google's going to do it too, and I think they're going to do a really good job with it. I'm I'm excited to see where they wind up with that. Yeah. So I got a new laptop the other day. It's a Samsung uh, Ativ ATIV Book Nine. Okay. It's a 12-inch uh, screened laptop, um, similar kind of size to like a MacBook Air. It's, you know, the Ultrabook that all of those machines are similar to these days. I'm running OpenBSD on it. It's got 8 gigs of RAM, uh, 256 gig SSD. The screen on it is pretty nice. It's kind of the, similar to the MacBook Air where it's not a completely glossy screen where there's like a um, glass covering the entire front and it's not a matte screen. Um, it's it's how it is on the MacBook Air. It's it's slightly glossy, but it's it's uh, you don't get a lot of reflection from it. Yeah, because actually, what I've found with a lot of matte, so-called matte screens, is that they can be worse than a glossy screen, depending on what kind of light you're in. Yeah, because with a glossy screen, you get your reflection back at you, which sucks. Um, but with a matte screen, if you have a light source behind you, the matte screen just scatters that light into a much bigger uh like whatever you know circle or whatever on your screen and it makes it hard as hard to see as you know a glossy screen sometimes yeah i know exactly what you're talking about the um the chromebook has that yeah um, the, so, a the acer has that and you almost think to yourself man i have however many pixels per inch my pixel density is high and then i have this thing in front of me that's making a matte finish so it's kind of diffusing my view of it anyway right so this has, uh, it's a 12.2 inch screen, um, but it's high DPI. So it's like 2850 or 2580 or whatever that resolution is. Very nice. So it's running, uh, I got OpenBSD on it. So the high DPI support in X is kind of weird to say the least. It's basically just scaling everything to twice the size. And then in X you set like what the DPI is or what it thinks it is based on the resolution. And then it just scales all the fonts up twice. And then in Firefox, you just need to like set a config setting that says what your um, DPI is. And then it uses that for uh, CSS calculations, like uh, font size and points and all that stuff. Yeah. So overall, it's not too bad. There were a few um, minor problems that I ran into with it, like the cursor size. So even with a high DPI setting, by default, your X cursors are still really tiny. Yeah. So you, I had to figure out how to work that, and there's supposed to be like settings that you can put in your X defaults file that uh, change that, but they didn't have any effect for me. So what I uh, ended up doing was the cursors are all coming from a font that's installed with X by default, mm -hmm. and there's just like a big version of that that just like doubles all of them. So you just put that font in place of the one that's installed by default, and suddenly all your cursors are big. So that solved that problem. Uh, as far as um, 
Oh, the keyboard on it is uh, very nice. It has a really nice tactile. Um, and after using it as my only laptop for like two days, when I go back to the MacBook Air, its keyboard feels really kind of cheap. Yeah. The, key, the keys move around a lot more, and uh, it's kind of more of a flimsy feel, which is weird because I've been typing on the MacBook Air for years now, and it never really bothered me until I used the nicer keyboard on the Samsung. Yeah, it's always about the perspective. Yeah, so it's you know it's a lot of the little things, and like the trackpad on it is glass, so it feels as nice as the MacBook Air. The only problem is that the trackpad goes over I2C, so it's no longer the old um, in OpenBSD would be the like PC KBC uh, yep. controller, because I guess for the new uh, Windows 10 they have some sort of new touchpad driver thing that a lot of the newer touchpads conform to to get um, like higher resolution and all the multi-touch gestures and stuff. Right. So I guess they needed more bandwidth than what they could cram through the um, that old interface. And as someone that has had to work in that driver on OpenBSD, there's like a lot of hacks that some of the vendors have had to do to cram more finger data through that. Right. So uh, we don't have uh, the I2C support in OpenBSD, so I have no working uh, mouse uh, that's a so, bummer. Yeah, so I'm uh, unfortunately using a USB mouse for now, but it works okay. So that's one thing I need to work on. And then the Wi-Fi is a um, Atheros chip that we don't support yet, but I think they do in FreeBSD and it uh, works in Linux. So I need to look into that. Yeah, wireless drivers are always fun. Yeah, they. Uh, there's just so much like magic numbers in those things that you don't even know what they're really doing. You just kind of copy and paste it and hope that it works because yeah. it came from some vendor that wrote the Linux driver and they didn't really want to document anything. Right. So aside from that, um, it's a pretty nice laptop. I really like it. It uh, It's one of the new Intel Core M's, so it doesn't have a fan, uh-huh. um, but it runs pretty, uh, pretty quiet. Or, I mean, so it runs quiet, obviously, but it runs pretty cool. That's really cool. What kind of battery life did you say? I got about four or something out of it. Um, I mean, it's been sitting on my desk plugged in, so I haven't really had to stick it on a battery for a long time. Huh. But it's got a lot of um, like the USB webcam and stuff that are that are actually coming up in OpenBSD. And I know that uh, those USB devices um, suck a lot of power, even when they're not really being used yeah. because they're up. So I was... Uh, looking into our USB stack to see what it would take to make like a user land driver that could tell the uh, USB stack to kill power to a certain device. Yep. So that would bring down like the, um, the webcam, the Bluetooth, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Those are definitely big power uh, users. And just in general, OpenBSD's um, power conservation is not as great as it could be, but it's not terrible. Yeah, not terrible. I've seen things that are worse. And as anything, like you can always sit there and improve and improve mm-hmm. and improve. So, yeah, I mean, like once we got the M weight stuff, that uh, helped out a lot. Yep. So I just sold the old laptop that I was using for OpenBSD for a while, which was a Asus um, UX305FA. Okay. It's another uh, really thin. Uh, ultrabook but it was a 13 inch screen which i find 
too big to use as a laptop for some reason. I guess that makes me weird. So um, I sold it, and this is going to send me off on a rant, but I just hate selling things on Craigslist. <laughs> Not so like I mean, Craigslist is a pretty bad website, but it's improved a lot in the last few years. Like you can actually upload like twenty photos, and um, I mean, it's still a pretty bad design. What like poorly designed website, but it's functional. But I don't know what it is about the people that troll Craigslist looking for things to buy that have no like concept of how to haggle and negotiate a price. Right. So like I listed the laptop for like five twenty, expecting to sell it for around five hundred because no matter who you sell something to, they always seem to want to uh, never pay exactly what you're asking. Right. So if you make them think that they got a deal by like letting them talk you down $20, which you expected to do anyway, they, you know, come out of it thinking that they got the better of you. But all these people that they just send you like a text or an email and they just say, what's your lowest price? <laughs> and usually your is spelled you are, but it's like, what does that mean? What's your lowest price? Like the price that I'm asking doesn't mean anything. I have this secret lowest price that I'm going to give to you because you asked right. and not because, you know, you negotiated me down because of some flaw with the laptop or it wasn't how I represented it or whatever. Yeah. It's just because you asked what's your lowest price. I'm going to go, Oh, well for you, I'll sell it for $300 instead. <laughs> and then these, these other people that just text you a number, nothing else. Like literally they just text you uh, like four zero zero and that's it. I don't understand these people. They're so infuriating. Yeah. But it like this is what you have to go through to try and sell something locally. You know, next time you put a listing up, you you should say uh 520 firm uh 550 if you try to negotiate and 600 if you um if you lowball me. Yeah, or just say like uh I'm selling it for 520, my lowest price is 540. Because, <laughs> like, you can't put an ad up and say, like, you know, because I've complained about this to people and they're like, well, why don't you just say 500 firm? And it's like, but then you lo you lose out on all the people that would buy it for 500 if it were listed for 520 because they want that deal and they think that, you know, if they got $20 out of you that they got the better of you. Yeah. So you can't do that firm thing. You got to just say, you know, 520 and let them, you know, bring you down to 500. But. Anyway, so after a few days of uh, those infuriating people, I just put it on eBay and ended up selling it for $500 anyway. Yeah, of course. Well, I'm glad you got it sold, and I'm glad you have some new hardware. It definitely sounds good. Um, probably not worth the hassle of having to go through a Craigslist ad, but <laughs> at least you got some money out of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know what it is about this laptop. I like didn't really hear anything about it. I just happened to find it on Amazon one day, and it's uh, it seemed like it had a lot of the specs that I was looking for. So yeah, sounds nice. So anyway, that's all I have on that machine. Yeah, very cool. I'm actually, um, maybe we should do another episode where we talk about, um, high resolution and high DPI monitors in X because, um, there's been some issues with people running into that, um, like with windows and stuff and Mac. Um, I think actually X server does a pretty good job with it. Um, uh, not as bad as the others, but certainly there's some things you have to know and some things you have to do to make it work. 
Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't work out of the box, but I have a, a Dell 4K monitor sitting behind me. And, um, you know, I had to set up the fonts to be a little bit bigger. And, you know, you open up the browser and the, you know, characters are like a half a millimeter tall. Right. So maybe we should cover that. Um, and we'll ask folks, if you want to hear about um, high DPI or high resolution monitors in X and OpenBSD or whatever, um, let us know. Uh, send us a tweet and uh, we'll try and get that worked into another episode. We got a lot of feedback on our first episode. A lot of people seemed to like it. They were uh, tweeting at me and at, at Garbage FM. So if you guys want to hear about anything specific, just uh, let us know. Yeah, we, we want to hear from you guys. And if you don't like something we said or uh, you disagree with it, let us know that too. Um, we, we'll honor all kinds of feedback. Um, let's try and keep it uh, constructive, though, at the very <laughs> least. But, yeah, we want to hear from you guys. Um, you know, really, we aren't um, we aren't the ultimate experts on any of this stuff. Um, and also, we, we want content that is interesting to you. So if you're listening right now and you say, hey, I'd like to hear about this, um, we'll give a candid uh, a review or a feedback or whatever on a specific thing or if there's something you want to know more about ask us that as well and uh, just so we have some interesting content for you guys on the show we'll always have things that we can talk about but give us your ideas and uh, give us your feedback we're looking forward to that cool and you can uh, send that to us on twitter at garbage fm or email um, i forget what the email address is but if you just go to garbage.fm our website um you can find us there. Yep, that's right. And it's on iTunes. That, uh, if you do a search for garbage, you'll find it there. Yeah, and uh, I did submit it to that new uh, Google podcast directory thing. Yes. Haven't Actually, heard back a yet. Pe- I don't know. What's up yeah, with that. a couple people asked me for that. Um, they said, hey, you can do it on Google too. And I didn't even mention it to you, but I think that you heard through Twitter, right? Somewhere. But yeah, I submitted it there and uh, haven't heard back. But um, I was listening to somebody else's podcast today and they were talking about it and they mentioned something that like Google is going to be hosting all of the audio files themselves, which kind of freaks me out because it's just another way that like Google is trying to take over something. Yeah. But they were talking about like uh, that Google would be doing that so that they could index all of the shows that they have and then provide searching through them, hmm. like searching the audio. So you could just search for like podcast episodes that cover a certain topic yeah. rather than like just subscribing to 20 different podcasts and hoping that they cover it or something like that. Yeah. So that would be kind of neat. But if Google is um, only getting into this to try and monetize it or stick ads in podcasts or something, then screw that. 